Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Book Cheat, the book club podcast where I've read the book so you don't have to. My name is Dave Warnicky, and on each episode of this show we look at one of the classics and joining me to look at such a classic this week, a returning guest. She's dear to all our hearts but especially to mine, it's my wife Gabriella White. <laughs> Hi. Hello Gabriella. How are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I think I actually wasn't your wife the last time I was on this podcast. No, you weren't. I've upgraded you. Yeah, I've been upgraded. You're the first wife I've had on this podcast. I am, in fact, in this moment, the first wife you've had on this podcast. (laughs) Well, the first of your wives. (laughs) That's right, but I mean, the first wife of mine I've had on the podcast. Will there have to be a future asterisk next to this episode? (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Well, don't you like to introduce me as your first wife? Yeah, just in case things go just, wrong down the track. You don't want to look like an idiot. I don't want to look like an idiot later on. That's a line from my stand-up show this year. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> I don't introduce you as my first wife. Just a bit of fun. You could. Maybe you should. <laughs> okay, yeah. Let's see how, how, how well that would last. I think it could be fun. Now, we're sitting here recording in our home with uh, a third guest we should introduce. Humphrey's here as well. Hello, Humphrey. I'm just going to hand the mic to him. <laughs> He's having a sniff. Humphrey is our 15-year-old son. That's not true. He is our four-year-old grudled dog. And he's, he's rec- gone back to sleep. He's reclining on the couch, gone back to sleep. Good dog. Good boy. A pleasure to have you back on. The last time you were on, we were talking about Pride and Prejudice. Yes, which I love. Which you love. And um, people loved that episode too, by the way. People have been wanting me to get you back on. I think it's a couple of years ago now, but that was of that year, the third highest voted episode in the annual Do Go On Awards. Yeah, which is interesting because um, my mum voted it as the episode where I was too mean to you. <laughs> she did say you were a bit mean. <laughs> my mum <laughs> sent me a message saying that I had to be less mean to you on the podcast. Well, obviously it resonated with the listeners. They like they like a bit of sass yeah. against the bookchook. Yeah. Do you know that that's what pe- people call me? I'm yes, trying to get people do. calling me the yeah. bookchook. No, no, no. Yes, I know that because that's what you call yourself <laughs> as well, just casually. Around the house. <laughs> call me the bookchook. Humphrey refuses. So great to get you back on and... Let's be honest, you're a real reader. I am. I'm definitely not the biggest reader in this house, even though I do a book podcast where I force myself to read. You also force yourself to read with a bit of a challenge. Last year, you successfully read 52 books, one for every week. Yeah, that's correct. You, it was down to the wire though, wasn't it, on uh, d- December 30? No, you it wasn't down. You always say this, but I was, I was like, I think I finished the last book, you know, in the last week of December, but it was not down to the wire, whereas you always... Love to say that I was in those final hours until midnight reading as quickly as I could. No, it's not. And we will talk about why that's not, not the case later on in this episode. I've got a little note to talk about what happened on uh, New Year's Eve this year. But yeah, 52. And you also have another reading challenge, which I'm sure people... I can't remember if we talked about this last time. It's been so long. You have been attempting to and have finished your challenge to read every booker, formerly known as the Man Brooker Prize winning books published in your lifetime. Yes. And now I've upgraded the challenge to every booker 
ever like winner of the book I ever written. And it's been going for sixty years or so. Or yeah. Something? So now I I have fifteen books left to read. I'm well, I'm in the seventies. You know, I'm well <laughs> back <laughs> Is back in you, time. Are you going back year by year? I I was just doing it a bit randomly, and now I'm really down to just trudging through. But as you go further and further back in time, because it wasn't like that much of a thing in the 60s or 70s. It wasn't that prestigious. It hadn't been around that long. Yep. So some of those books are quite hard to find. Right. So I, I have to find some of them. I have to locate them. Well, some of the book chooks listening at home might be able to help you out with that. Some of these yeah. people read, read obscure books. I've got a little list. I can tell you what I still need to... Oh, maybe we'll get a book swap happening. What do you need? So I haven't read the first one, which was in 1969, Something to Answer For. Yeah, I've never heard of that, to be honest. Yeah. The Elected Member in 1970. Sounds like a porno. And I wish it was, but I think it will be much denser than that. <laughs> yeah, actually, it will be. I've been, I've been stuck for a long, long time on the Famished Road, which is 1991. And then after that, I'm pretty clear back into the 70s and the 80s. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. If yeah, I still have 15 left. And of the ones you've read so far... What do you think is the best booker so far? The booker of bookers, which they've done a couple of times, right? They've had competitions. Yeah. Or like a, a Well, a the panel. booker's booker actually has been awarded and I have read that and that's Midnight's Children. Oh, the Salmon Rush D? Yes, yes but correct. Do you rate that? I don't think you – you don't love it, do you? Do you know, I think probably – I think it deserved to win the year that it won. Okay. But I do think that it it doesn't necessarily hold up past the 2000s. You know, I think we just – we passed the end of history – and probably that was when Midnight's Children stopped being as poignant. When we passed the end of history. That's a, that's a like famous geopolitical theory that there was the end of history. Do I exist right now? <laughs> it was the end of history. And then, I I, and then I'm not kidding, 9-11 happened and they're like, oh, looks like history's restarted. Because <laughs> it was that period between the Cold War ending <laughs> and 9-11. And we're back. <laughs> and they were like, okay, right, sorry, scrap that theory. But that's that was like the prevailing geopolitical political theory of the time was the end of history and is rusty back on the table or we're we're into something new now we've restarted as in should does midnight's children still hold yeah that's what you said it was good until history stopped and then it started again no i think it was good while history was stopped yeah but then once history started again okay i don't know how much it so i i mean i would say i think the book that i like the most Mm -hmm. is probably the sea who's that one by I couldn't tell you. I don't remember the author's names. I just remember I'll look the it up for people because they will. They want to know this. But I have, and now I'm doing something where I, I did it last year and I'm doing it this year. I read the whole long list. Ah oh, yes. So how many do they 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 have a short list? But before that, they have an even longer long list. Yeah, they, which they call the Booker's Dozen, which is twelve or thirteen, depends how many they want to put on the right. long list. And I would say last year the book that won. Was not, I don't think it was the best book on the long list. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and you can say that now because you read them all. And I will say that. I will continue to say that. <laughs> and uh, The Sea, 2005 novel by John Banville. There you go, an Irish novelist. It was his 13th book. Good on you, John. Good on you, John. I mean, I will say, I think I read that book when I was 13. 
So let's see if it is. So don't blame me if it's a bit weird. No, we have to check the tape. Was history happening at this time? History was in fact happening. It was back. We were back with yeah, John Banville. Yeah, we were Banville. back in history. <laughs> I think it's either 9-11 or John Banville that restarted history. No, it was. It really was 9-11. <laughs> All right, we're going to talk about a book this week. I've been reading a book and uh, for once you've also read the book. I had read the book last time. Yes, that's true. But I I'm mean, the only person who does their homework on this the podcast. Home- most of the time, it's very difficult to tie down a comedian to give them, get them to give out, give up a couple of hours, let alone ask them to read an entire book. Well, but can you, comedians read? Most of them, no. In my experience, <laughs> that's no. probably part of the problem. <laughs> now, this week we are talking about Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. And a happy, cheerful book. <laughs> That's right. But people want this book. It's yeah. been suggested by a lot of people. And anyone who wants to suggest a book, there's a link in the description of this episode. And when I get to it, I'll give you a shout out. And these people suggested The Bell Jar. Thank you so much to Lenny Hoynes from Aldershot in the UK. Haley from Dublin. Mercedes Conway from Allentown, Pennsylvania. Sophie from Northcote. Tony Daly from Lufton in Essex. Mandy Wright from Chandler, Arizona. Emily Crouch from Edinburgh. Kendall Earls from Colfax, Iowa. Gabby Geigerwolf from Manitoba in Canada. Megan Fryer from Minnesota, USA. And or she'd probably say Megan. And Megan wrote, you know, you can write a little thing. Why should Dave do it? Which I always read them all. And this one made me laugh from Megan. I told everyone it was my favorite book in high school. I can't remember if I actually ever read it. <laughs> there you go. So, Megan... I'll get you up to speed just in well, case. Well, this is what I get concerned about, though, is that if people are putting these requests so long ago, was it because they had a book report due? A lot of the time. I've and definitely now you've had let that. them down. It says like, oh, I'm doing first year English at uni and really need this. And I look back and it says 2019. And you're like, well, gra- well, I hope you had a nice graduation. I hope you got there. Well, I hope that they failed and they're going to go back and retake okay. the class now. I don't know if we should wish for people's failure. They worked hard. Yeah. <laughs> they probably did. Hard enough to ask a book podcast to summarize it for them. And you know what? That's actually working smarter. That's working smarter, not exactly. harder. Exactly. I agree. Yeah, you have to out. That's actually a really good lesson for the for their professional careers. Know what you can delegate. I'd probably hire that person over whoever did read the book. Well, probably. Just... You wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> now, I've got to give a warning to start on this episode. As you said, very cheerful book, not. This book has many mentions of suicide and depression there's also an attempted sexual assault. I will not go into as much detail as the book, but this is just a warning. There are some very heavy and traumatic themes throughout the Bell Jar. So let's give it a bit of background. The Bell Jar is the only novel by American writer and poet Sylvia Plath. Do you know much about Plath? Well, she's a very famous feminist thinker. Yes, absolutely. And that comes through in this book, absolutely. She was born in Boston in 1932. Her father, I didn't know this, Otto Plath, was a German immigrant and a professor of entomology at Boston University and was one of the world's foremost experts on bees. And what a thing to I be an expert it. on. That's yeah. the best. Her mother, Aurelia, taught high school English and German, so both German-speaking parents. Her father died when she was just eight, which was traumatic and made things financially difficult for the family from that yeah, point on. Yeah, as it would. Absolutely. Yeah. Sylvia also began writing poetry at the age of eight and also wrote fiction in regional newspapers and magazines. So she's a bit of a child prodigy. She was a bright and gifted student and got a scholarship to Smith College where she continued to publish poetry and short stories which earned her a guest editorship at Mademoiselle magazine in New York. 
Suffering from mental illness and depression from a young age, it was during this time that she was sent to a private psychiatric hospital for six months. She returned to Smith where she went on to write her honours thesis on Dostoevsky, on Dostoevsky and earned a Fulbright scholarship to study at Cambridge University. So, very smart lady. Very smart. Very talented lady. And people are very aware of it from, from a, a very young age. In England, she met future British poet laureate Ted Hughes, whom she married in 1956. The couple had two children, Frida and Nicholas. And in 1960, Plath published her first volume of poetry called Colossus and Other Poems. So that was, a, that was a high point, but after discovering her husband's affair, Plath separated from Ted Hughes and moved with her children to an apartment in London's Primrose Hill. The apartment was in a house that once belonged to Irish writer William Butler Yeats. Plath really admired Yeats and saw this as a bit of a sign. Yeah, you would see it as a sign. That's a cool bit of history to talk about. Yes, and apparently it was very difficult. She said at the time, you know, she told people at the time, it was very difficult to find a house to rent as it is uh, currently. Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. But she said it was very difficult, especially for uh, a single mother with a couple of young children. And she went out one day and just happened to see this was for rent. She's the first person to see it. And it's got the plaque out the, pr- out the front saying, uh, WB Yates lived here. She got it and she was like, this is a great sign. Yeah, that's a great sign. I'm going to write some great stuff in here. Which she did. She received a grant to write the novel that would become the Bell Jar. The book is a thinly veiled autobiography, which Britannica writes, chronicles a young woman's mental breakdown and eventual recovery while also exploring societal expectations of women in the 1950s. She also began to write poetry prolifically during this period and wrote some of her most celebrated poems, including Lady Lazarus, Daddy, Poppies in July, and Ariel. Ariel's particularly a famous one. Despite this output, she slid into a depressive episode that lasted many months and Plath ended her own life in 1963, just two weeks after the publication of The Bell Jar, which was published under the pseudonym Victoria Lucas. She was only 30 years old. Yeah, she was young. So young. According to Lois Ames, Plath used a pen name because she questioned its literary value and did not believe it was a, quote, serious work. She was also worried about the the pain publication might cause to the many people close to her whose personalities she had distorted and lightly disguised in the book. Very thoughtful. Absolutely. The Bell Jar was published under Plath's name for the first time a few years later in 1967, but was not published in the United States until 1971 in accordance with the wishes of both Plath's husband, Plath's husband, it's hard to say, Ted Hughes and her mother. Her mother, I think, was she was especially worried about her portrayal of her mother in the book. Sylvia was? Yeah. Or the mother was worried no, about No, I think her, Sylvia she? was. She mm. was a bit like, ooh, mum doesn't come off too well in this, as you'll see. And then they, uh, yeah, kept it back until the 70s. Plath's literary fame really came only after her death. The Collected Poems of Sylvia Plath was published in 1981 and she was posthumously awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry in 1982. One of those, Good for her. Yes, very nice, but one of those sad stories. Yeah. As uh, I've probably spoken about too often on this show. Yeah, I think actually there's a lot of sad stories that you cover here. Yeah, people getting their the fame or the, uh, you know, the adulation that they deserved in life, but they never got to see. And from there, her fame has only continued to grow, it should be said. One of her biographers, Heather Clark, describes her as, quote, perhaps the best-known American woman poet of the 20th century. 
Plath has been studied, portrayed, referenced, analysed, psychoanalysed, mythologised, recontextualised and deconstructed in the 60 years since her death. And today we are talking about her only and yet incredibly enduring novel, The Bell Jar, which has become a classic. Now, we always start with the opening line to give a little bit of uh, the, the author's words give you a bit of context and I'll give you a little bit more than usual because I think it's an incredibly engaging opening really grabbed me let's see what everyone else out there thinks this is how the bell jar starts it was a queer sultry summer the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs and I didn't know what I was doing in New York I'm stupid about executions the idea of being electrocuted makes me sick and that's all there was to read about in the papers goggle-eyed headlines staring up at me on every street corner and at the fusty, peanut-smelling mouth of every subway. It had nothing to do with me, but I couldn't help wondering what it would be like, being burned alive all along your nerves. I thought it must be the worst thing in the world. And we're off. There's quite a bit of foreshadowing in that. Yes, there is. But I read that and I was like, whoa, I'm in. Yeah, we are in the middle of history there. Yes, And uh, we've just met our narrator there, recalling the summer of 1953 when Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, for people who don't know, were executed by the electric chair in New York after being convicted of spying for the Soviet Union. It was a big news story at the time and there were worldwide outcries for clemency for the couple, which ultimately was not given. Our narrator, whose name we actually don't learn until chapter three, but it's easier just to say it now so we know who I'm talking about. Her name turns out to be Esther Greenwood. The book opens with her memories of 1953 and that year and its events really form most of the plot. What were you doing in 1953? Well, I was in the ether. Yes. Somewhere in the ether. Not existing yet, but just observing history. Ah, right. Just observing history. We're in the middle of the Cold War. So, do we check the clock? Is history happening? History's happening. Okay. We haven't hit stop yet. Yeah, no, history's happening. History History was... was happening. We're, ha- we're having the Cold War. Mm-hmm. This is when the iron curtains are starting to go up. The cultural curtains all go down. They're going down. <laughs> yeah, curtains, they do the go curtains up. are being they drawn. Down. <laughs> this is when they were divvying up the spoils of the spoils of World War Two, mm-hmm. and also the atrocities. They were divvying those up and and putting them on to other people. So it was, I think it was quite a difficult time in Europe, but it was a less difficult time in America. It was really when America was staking its claim as at least one of two superpowers. Good for America, unless your last name happens to be Rosenberg. Well, and that's why, but that's why they were executed. I think it turns out that they were actually, they were selling the secrets, but yeah, a brutal end. Absolutely awful. Back in 1953, Esther Greenwood, our main character, is a 19-year-old undergrad student from Boston who has won a month-long summer internship at a New York-based magazine called Ladies' Day. So we're already seeing the similarities between Sylvia Plath's life and her Mm. character there because she also had a summer internship in New York City working on a magazine. Yeah. So it is pretty thinly veiled. Yes. Now, Esther, the character, got lots of free stuff during her internship. I mean, go for it. She's got lipsticks, mascaras, a sunglasses case with a starfish sewn onto it. She still has lots of the items and the narrator writes that she recently unstitched the starfish and, quote, gave it to baby. So clearly some time has passed on these memories that she's reflecting on, although we never hear about the baby again, Mm. which I like. Maybe it's not her baby. It might not be. 
Could be our baby. Gave it. She gave it to baby. Baby the, was also a pet name that people had. Okay. I, th- I was thinking that maybe people. she's handing it out to a random baby on the street. Maybe she was. She could have been. But often, like, the baby of a family was called baby. It's true. Shout out to Dirty Dancing. Esther was one of 12 girls who had won these internships and they all stayed at a hotel called the Amazon. And now I'm going to switch back to present tense now. So at the start of the book, all of the book, she's reflecting on it. But for mm. me to tell the story, I'll be in present tense. But we're living it. Yeah, we're living it. That's right. We're following Esther Greenwood during this uh, this pivotal year in her life. So the, the tw- I call them girls because she calls them girls. So they're all um, young adults. They're wined and dined and write articles for the magazine, get given free clothes and can buy cutting edge fashion. But from the start... Esther feels out of step with the others. She says, 19 years and I hadn't been out of New England except for this trip to New York. It was my first big chance. But here I was, sitting back and letting it through my fingers like so much water. She thinks she should be having the time of her life, but she isn't. She mostly feels numb and she's quite worried about that. She's living what on paper is an enviable life and she's not enjoying any of it. She ponders, something must be wrong with me. I think the thing that's wrong with her is that she's 19. Yes. I just feel like that feels like the universal experience of being 19. Right. When something, I don't know, you think it's going to be bigger than it is and then it comes, you go, huh, okay. Yeah, you don't have a lot of other experiences to compare any experience to. Yeah, so you think this is going to be life-changing or what you've been waiting for. And sometimes it isn't. But also sometimes it actually is. But your idea, you, you romanticize the idea of what should be life changing so much that something less magically life changing feels as though it's not happening at all. Mm. When truly it's just, you know, incremental. And it's only when you look back. Yeah. And I think if you're a ruminator, as I would suggest Esther is, yeah, she's given very, how much she's reflecting, it's very in her own head. And we're in her head with her throughout this And book. we are with her in her head. I think sometimes if you're a ruminator, it's even harder to just be in the moment, see a moment for what it is and not worry about it not being more. Right. And part of her thing is that she starts, she worries that she's not in the moment. Like, oh, I've got to do this. Like she freaks out like, oh, I've been here three weeks and nothing really has happened yet. And I've been in New York. I've got to do this. And then she sort of gets increasingly desperate to do stuff. Yeah. And don't you feel like that's the difference between like doing a Kentucky tour when you're 19 Versus going on holidays when you're 29 and when you're 19, you're like, oh, I've got to do, I've got to go out every night. I've got to go shopping. I've got to go out, get back in at 1am, not sleep, get back up at 5am to start sizing. <laughs> yeah. When you're 29, you're like, might be time to get the old Nintendo out and play around in yeah. Mario Kart. We are in Italy and as I like to do, you know, it's just that difference of understanding that you can enjoy a moment without it being having had the most experience crammed into every second. Yes. And that's what and she, but she's worried. She's like, "Well, I'm not I'm not feeling as what everyone else seems to be feeling, but maybe they're faking it as well, who knows." She's friends with the other girls, but she can't quite relate to them. There's Betsy who is super sincere and nice, and Doreen who is more cynical and a rebel. She goes out one night with the cynical Doreen, and this is what I'm talking about. She um And the other girls don't really like Doreen. No, because she and she doesn't really like them either. Yeah, Doreen, Doreen finds the other girls a bit like goody two-shoes. Yeah. But they think she's really behaving badly given the opportunity they've all been given. Yes, they think she's a bit of a bad apple. Yeah. But she doesn't care what they think. No, she doesn't. And her name's Doreen, so why would she? 
And she's very glamorous and she attracts a man on the street called Lenny Shepard. Great. And they're supposed to be going out to like a formal dinner or a ballroom thing with all the other girls. But this guy says, hey, baby, they're at the traffic lights in the taxi. Why don't you come over a drink with us? And Doreen's like, do you want to go? And this is when Esther's like, oh, finally, something. I guess this is like, you know, seeing the city. Yeah, yeah let's go. And they leave the others behind. And Lenny convinces the two women to drink with him and his friends. Esther is quite inexperienced in the world, as we quickly learn. She isn't sure what alcohol even to order, as everything she's tried tastes awful. So she just... This is, again, the experience of being 19. I don't know what to order. So she just orders a plain vodka because she's seen um, an ad for it and it looks like crystal clear water. She's like, that'd be good. No. (laughs) But then she describes it as, oh, it tastes like nothing. And I've heard people say vodka. It tastes like nothing. Not to, it tastes like petrol to me. But wait, wait, wait. when was the last time you had vodka? Were you in fact nineteen? Because I suggest maybe that's the type of vodka you were drinking. Yeah, maybe, but still, it just always has that after aftertaste. The other day, I saw a businessman, a businessman wearing a business suit. So that's why I know he's a businessman, and I knew he had been having a bit of a rough day because he's walking down the street, and in one hand he had a full. You know, a litre bottle of sky blue vodka. And in the other hand, he had a 600ml bottle of orange juice. And it was one swig of vodka and then one swig of OJ. Just making that cocktail in his mouth. Oh, that poor man. Hard <laughs> day at the office. Uh, so, she orders vodka. She writes, my dream was someday ordering a drink and finding out it tasted wonderful. <laughs> and my uh, suggestion is, you got to try a pina colada. Well, my suggestion is, maybe that's not alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's not alcohol, babe. Yeah, what you need is a uh, double chocolate shake with extra Yeah, milk. I think what you need is maybe like uh, something, a Diet Coke. <laughs> yeah, what you good. <laughs> so she, But she has a vodka. She says, oh, it's all right. It tastes like nothing. A short man notices Esther, who in this moment actually lies about her name. She calls herself Ellie Higginbottom. Isn't that, is that one of the other girls? Or she just makes that I name think she up. just makes it up. Okay. I'm pretty sure she just makes it up, which is a, f- a fun name to get bottom yeah. in there. Yeah, good for her. Yeah. <laughs> She's done well there. And the man who's a friend of um, of Lenny, the guy that's chatting up Doreen, starts trying to chat up Esther, but she is not interested in this short king. He's a tiny man, she says. He asks her to dance and she says no thanks and is pretty brutal in her description. She writes, The thought of dancing with that little runt in his orange suede elevator shoes and mingy t-shirt and droopy blue sports coat made me laugh. If there's anything I look down on, it's a man in a blue outfit. Well, it's probably also this man if he's that short. <laughs> just naturally she's going to look down on him. But shout out to the short kings. Thank you. As a short man yeah. whose favourite colour is blue, this really hurt me. Yeah, and you know what? Good thing that Esther's not around today because if she was on TikTok, she would find out that it has been a short king season. The short kings are having a moment. Finally. Rub on top. It's what you deserve. Cop that Michael Jordan. <laughs> Eventually, they ditch the short man. She's got no interest in... She she describes him as what uh, dogging at her elbow. So, he's quite a short man. Yeah. She says she's five foot ten in flat. So, she's relatively she's tall. tall. That's she's tall. tall. That's tall. But this man is, is at her elbow. She's, she gives him nothing. Eventually, he leaves. And the other three go back to Lenny Shepard's apartment and it turns out that Lenny is a radio DJ. He dresses like a cowboy and lives in an apartment that he has tried to make look like a ranch with bullhorns on a pine panelled wall. And he puts on a recording of his own radio show saying, nothing like listening to yourself talk. No, and and I think that's a flag. 
And I'm not going to say the colour that it is, but I hope we're all thinking that it's the same colour. I've written here, now this is a guy I can relate to. Can you? <laughs> this is a red flag. This is a red flag. Vanessa's like, as long as it's not blue, I don't care what colour flag this is. Doreen and the cowboy start dancing and kissing and play fighting and Esther decides to leave them to it and she walks 43 blocks back to the Amazon Hotel. Which, before we went to New York, we would have gone, that was so long. But now that we've been there... I think this is 43 short blocks. Too. Short blocks? Short blocks, not that far. It's Especially not that far. late at night, the traffic started down. You don't have to give away to as much traffic. Yeah. We were in New York for the first time last month and uh, we're showing off about it. <laughs> <laughs> we're showing off about how much we know about the blocks now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we've walked a block or two in our time. <laughs> we have walked a block. 43, that's still a long way though. It'll take you a long time. She says that she was completely sober by the time she gets back. And she gets home. She has a bath. She well, goes. she had one drink. I think it is only one drink, yeah. Of just vodka? Just vodka. Yeah, that would wear off. We didn't say how big it was. Okay. It was a 600ml glass. Maybe. A very big glass. <laughs> no, she had a bottle of Sky Blue in one hand and an orange juice in the other. you got to mix them up. She gets back. She has a bath and goes to sleep only to be awoken by Doreen, her mate, banging on her door saying... Ellie Higginbottom, Ellie Higginbottom. She's like, wow, she really thinks I'm this character now. Doreen is drunk out of her mind and Esther can't be bothered dealing with her. So she helps her to lie down on the carpet in the hallway outside her room. Doreen vomits all over the floor and Esther leaves her to it and just goes back to bed. Just whistles and goes, (laughs) nothing to see here. Yeah, that's not the girl code, is it? No, and she's like, she's so drunk, she won't remember what happened. Which is pretty brutal. That's mean. Yeah, I, I would just like to say at this point, if you are 19 and listening, here's just a little mnemonic for you. Girls look after girls. Boys are the enemy. So that's what you need to remember at all times. <laughs> Hang on a second. Humphrey? <laughs> no, he doesn't care. Esther decides then to have nothing to do with Doreen because really it's the much nerdier but kinder Betsy that she more resembles at heart. She acknowledges that. And there's a lot more vomiting that goes on at this hotel, let me tell you, because a little later in the book, most of the girls, including Esther, get severe food poisoning from some crab meat served to them at an event. And the company that supplied the food are mortified, possibly worried they're going to get sued, and they buy all the girls a get-well gift, which was a collection of short stories. One of the stories that Esther recalls is about a fig tree that grows on a lawn in between a Jewish man's house and a nun's convent. Every day, the man and the nun go out to pick the figs until one day, the backs of their hands touch. A little bit of a moment, and then the nun never comes out again. And instead, a mean-faced, this is from the book, mean-faced Catholic kitchen maid came out instead, making sure the man didn't take more figs than she did. So that's the story that sticks with her. And more on that fig tree later. Yeah, I think there's a bit of... Foreshadowing. A bit of fig shadowing there, absolutely. Fig shadowing. <laughs> every, how about, what if every time there's foreshadowing, I'll say a bit of foreshadowing and you could do like a special effect on my voice? Oh my God. What do you want it to sound like? <laughs> I'll just put that sound effect underneath it. Great, perfect. Perfect. No notes. One day, the editor of the magazine where she's interning, a woman named JC, asks Esther into her office to ask, what the young woman plans to do after she graduates from graduates from college. So some of the other girls of this program, they've already finished college, but Esther's still got one year to go. Mm. She's asked, what are you going to do after that? And she writes, 
What I always thought I had in mind was getting some big scholarship to graduate school or a grant to study all over Europe. And then I thought I'd be a professor and write books of poems or write books of poems and be an editor of some sort. Usually I had these plans on the tip of my tongue. I don't really know, I heard myself say. I felt deep shock hearing myself say that because the minute I said it, I knew it was true. It sounded true. And I recognised it. The way you recognise some nondescript person that's been hanging around your door for ages and then suddenly comes up and introduces himself as your real father and looks exactly like you. So you know he really is your father and the person who you thought all your life was your father is a sham. Love that. So she realises in the moment she's not sure what she wants to do with her life. And main character mostly feels directionless. She writes, The one thing I was good at was winning scholarships and prizes and that era was coming to an end. I felt like a racehorse in a world without racetracks. Discombobulating. Yeah, that would be, you know, the only thing you've ever known. The thing that you're good at, the thing you're known for. You're thinking, I can't do that anymore. Yeah, she's got she's got gifted child burnout. Yes. Absolutely. She's about to discover it. It doesn't matter if you read the book for your book report or not. <laughs> That's right. Once you're out there in the real world. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you just spend an hour listening to the podcast about and it instead. And good for you if you did. And thank you to you if you did. <laughs> thank you to you. <laughs> I honestly have had people write in to say, hey, I did a, I did a, a, you know, an essay without reading the book. I just heard your show. Got to be pretty happy with that. Yeah, good. And to good. them I say thank you. <laughs> thank you for letting me know. If you're writing anything about the Belgia, please let us know. We'd yeah, love to hear it. Yeah, let us know. So she's not sure what she's going to do. She has applied for a summer writing course that she's confident that she'll get into. So she thinks getting in is almost a given. So that's something to look forward to. Well, in fact, it's not even something to look forward to. It's just what's happening. Her only sense of a plan. I'll do that. I'll finish college. Then I don't know what else. Yeah, then then we'll pick up this thought. Yeah, but, but she knows. I'm going to get into this writing course. I always get in. I always get picked. But after the course, Esther isn't sure whether to pursue writing and a life of creativity, become a teacher or to marry and live a conventional domestic life like many others of her generation. Her friends and family back home expect her to marry her old college boyfriend, Buddy Willard. When Esther is in New York, Buddy, who is a medical student, is upstate at a hospital where he is recovering from tuberculosis. Mm. Buddy Willard is mentioned throughout the book. Esther's disdain for him is clearly on her mind a lot. Uh, through a few different flashbacks, I'll put a few here, a bit of a highlight reel of uh, Buddy Willard or lowlights. Through flashbacks and memories, we learn more about the man whom she was infatuated with for many years. We learn that the attractive, intelligent and athletic boy, sounds pretty good to me, didn't notice Esther for a long time, but eventually he invited her to the junior college prom. And that's when they sort of got together. Yeah. But Buddy, I got to tell you, he has no respect for Esther's poetry and tells her that poems are, quote, a piece of dust, insignificant, which is a pretty brutal thing to say to a poet. Yeah, it is. And it's also, I would suggest what any student doctor would say to any English major. <laughs> don't you think? It's such a like, well, why are you doing that? Why are you doing an arts degree? I don't know, mate. It's the only thing I could get into. Let's just <laughs> see how it goes. In the moment, Esther responded, oh, I guess so. But in the months since, she's had a lot of time having imaginary conversations in her head. She got the ick. She got the ick. Well, and it's not like, um, you know, she's losing her mind conversations in her head. More the classic coming up with a perfect comeback weeks and months later. Yeah. You know, if only I'd said this. She wished that she'd replied to Buddy who said, poems are a piece of dust. She wished she'd said to the guy who remembers the student doctor, so are the cadavers you cut up. 
Some of the people you think you're curing, they're dust as dust as dust. I reckon a good poem lasts a whole lot longer than a hundred of those people put together. Bang, got him. Yeah. I don't know if you do, got him. <laughs> but what I would say is, if it makes you feel better, probably worth it. Yeah, for sure. So Buddy, he's not supportive of her creative pursuits. He wants a wife that will mirror his mother, someone who will live a life of domestic servitude. Also, he took her skiing once and despite not being a ski instructor in any way, he claims he's watched enough instructors and that he's got the gist. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is the ick. This is the ick. She's got the ick. Well, it didn't go well. He tried to teach Esther how to ski and then she broke her leg in two places. Oh, and could he fix it? Oh, he's not a qualified doctor yet. <laughs> That's so right. No, he couldn't. That's right. His skills at that stage were pretty dusty. Yeah. <laughs> so they've kissed a few times. And he asks one day, this is one of the flashbacks, if she wanted to see him naked, as she'd soon have to get used to it. She agreed and he stripped off and she had this great review of his naked body. She says, quote, the only thing I could think of was turkey neck and turkey gizzards and I felt very depressed. (laughs) She said, that's so interesting because I've often thought the same thing. (laughs) Ouch. We have to cut that bit out so that my mum doesn't hear. (laughs) Because you're sassing. She's like, you're too mean to him. You're too mean about his naked body. <laughs> He's a sensitive man. So this is all this has all happened and we're drip fed these anecdotes and she's really only realised how awful he is in hindsight when she made a discovery that really changed her opinion of him. He went away to medical school at Yale and one day she visited him there where she asked if he, like her, is still a virgin. Assuming that he is. He got a bit awkward but admitted that he slept with a waitress that he met. Inside, Esther was furious. She tries to play it cool, but she's thinking about how much of a hypocrite Buddy is expecting her and all the women to save themselves for marriage. And then he does this. She always felt like he made her feel like it was her who was pushing to kiss and do risque things. But he's been banging around this whole time. Yeah. And that's her biggest gripe with him. She describes him many times as a hypocrite. Yeah, or... A bit of a man slot. Yes. Yes. She says, what I couldn't stand was buddies pretending I was so sexy and he was so pure when all the time he'd been having an affair with that tarty waitress and must have felt like laughing in my face. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, this is pre-70s, but I would just like to say something wrong with being a man slot. It's, it's just you can't, you can't have that double standard. And have the judginess yeah. associated with it. Yeah. yeah. I don't think you get to judge anyone at all. Yes, you shouldn't anyway, but absolutely. She's feel, she feels judged and let down. Yeah. And he's a hypocrite. She can't forgive him. She decided then and there that she wouldn't marry him, even if he was, quote, the last man on earth, and vowed to herself lose her virginity with someone else. I will say, I think if he was the last man on earth, I don't know if you would have to get married anyway. I think that's probably not that much of a... I don't think you legally could. Who's going to yeah, be your witnesses? A, a de facto relationship? Sure. But, I mean, it's like a legal process. There's mm. no one there to file the paperwork. That's right. And if you get a divorce, I mean, you have to divvy up the assets of all of planet Earth. Yeah, that's too complicated. Yeah. <laughs> all right. You I'll that. take South America. You have North America. Yeah. I mean, I will say if you're in a de facto relationship, you still have to divvy up the assets. So I don't know how you I don't know how you get around that. Yeah. I reckon you just split the continents. Yeah. Great. <laughs> so this all happened. She's cracked it at him. But then he got diagnosed with tuberculosis and she feels like she can't fully dump him now. 
So she's gone. It to would be, it would be a lot. Yes, yeah, to dump someone with tuberculosis. Yes, and she's gone to visit him a few times, mm. and he's okay. Like he's recovering. They think he's sort of taking it easy, but she does feel a bit like I can't dump him. It will look like. Do we ever find out how he got tuberculosis? No, I'm not sure. I don't know. Were doctors more likely to get it because they're? I don't know how tuberculosis. What is? Is it a lung thing? Yes, yeah, I think it's in your lungs, and it's like a coughing thing. You sort of basically cough your, cough your lungs up. And he says in the book that he he says to her, "Don't worry, I'm not contagious. I've got an inactive type." Is that true? I assume so, because otherwise, why would they let people visit them all the time? Like she visits a lot. This is this is pre the end of history, so anything was going. <laughs> it's just free for all. Pre the end of history, as in nearly all of history to this point. Co- correct. <laughs> It was always a free-for-all. Yeah, apparently she can't get it from him. So he's got a type that's not contagious. According to him, he's a medical student, but also he is a bit of a bullshit ass. So who knows? He proposes marriage to her after he's hospitalized, but she tells him she'll never marry anyone. It's not, like, it's not you, it's me. I don't want to marry anyone. Yeah, that's a good get out, get out card. He laughs and tells her that she'll change her mind. But she's in her mind thinking, I will never marry you, mate. We return... To the image of the fig tree, as told in the short story she read. And this is a famous quote from the book, I've got to say, that has been referenced by a few things since publication. It's Esther musing on life's possibilities and her confusion as to what path to take. And I'll read out the paragraph here. I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children and another fig was a famous poet, and another fig was a brilliant professor, another fig was E.G., the amazing editor, and another fig was Europe and Africa and South America, and another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila and a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions. These are men that she knows that she's mentioned very briefly in the story, just for context there. And another fig was an Olympic lady crew champion, and beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest, and as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black, and one by one, they plopped to the ground at my feet. Story of life, isn't it? It's all about choices and which choices you make and don't make. Yeah, but I think, again, this is a very 19-year-old perspective, because... There's all sorts of figs you can't see, figs that will grow once you get onto a particular branch. Maybe, and also, just because you're on a branch, you've plucked a fig, doesn't mean you can't make your way back to the trunk, get a different fig later. fig, yes, but I guess she's worried about the ones down the bottom. By the time I get back down there, they might be gone. Well, they'll look different. They'll be different. They might be from a different crop of figs, a different season of fruitery. But I think that is a very, it's interesting thinking about Sylvia Plath writing this as an almost 30-year-old. Yep. Because it doesn't feel like any of that perspective that you get as you age is at all imbued in the character. Like the character really feels 19. Yeah, but I guess that she is saying, this is how I felt at the time. She's not saying Yeah, but that's, I'm saying that's yeah. a testament to her writing. Oh, right. It's yes, not at all yeah. sort of cloud. I mean, and I don't know, maybe she never developed that perspective, but I think it's a testament to her writing that that character is not clouded by that age perspective where you might understand as Sylvia Plath probably came to understand that she could be a famous poet and 
a graduate student and have a husband and children. I mean, the husband obviously turned out to be a bit of a scumbag, but she did have that type of experience. So I think that's, that's, it's such a quintessential youthful encapsulation of the character there in her perspective of the fig tree. And an excellent use of one of my favorite words, plopped. Plopped. Great. Great. Love that one of the word plopped is in one of this very famous passage. It's so versatile. So good. So good. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. As her internship in New York comes to a close, all 12 interns have their photographs taken for the magazine, but unlike the others, Esther can't put on the artificial smile and she actually starts crying during the shoot. The photographer asks her what she wants to be because they're all sort of posing. One of them's a hat maker, so she's posing with one of her hats. And they're like, what do you want to be? And Esther says she doesn't know. Oh, sure you know, the photographer said. JC wittily says she wants to be everything. Yeah. Which is also a bit mean. She's crying, JC. <laughs> <laughs> that night, Esther goes out to a country dance with Doreen, the rebellious Doreen, and is introduced to a, her blind date for the night, a guy called Marco, who Esther quickly realises is a woman hater. Perfect. And she realises it straight away. He forces Esther to dance and then confesses that he's in love with his first cousin and then attempts to take it out on Esther by assaulting her, but she fights back and punches him in the nose. Good for her. She uh, really uh, Fs up his nose. That night, she's clearly distressed. It's an awful scene. There's a lot more to that, but it's, it's quite disturbing. She's clearly distressed, and one by one, Esther throws all of the items in her wardrobe off the top of the roof of the hotel in New York. Symbolic there. Mm. A cleansing ritual. That's right. And she's like, all this new stuff, because most of the other ladies are excited. They've got these new coats. They've got this great stuff that they've been given, and she's like... This stuff means nothing to me. Throws it all away. The next day, she returns home to Boston. Having thrown away all of her clothing, she has to trade her bathrobe with Betsy, the nice girl, for a shirt and skirt to wear. Esther's mother picks her up and immediately gives her some bad news. That summer riding course that she fully expected to get into, well, she didn't. Quote, the air punched out of my stomach. Esther's mother is pretty blunt about it. She's not super supportive of Esther's desire to become a writer. Esther's father died when she was nine and her mother wants her to learn shorthand to have a career to fall back on. Yeah, which is such a mum thing. Yeah. Such a mum thing to to want you to have something to fall back on. Mum, I'm Sylvia Plath. (laughs) I'm good. I'm really good at this. But mum's like, yeah, what about, you know, have you thought about doing accounting? Have you had, what if you just had a little qualification? Yeah, you're pretty good. Yeah, so get a cert four and something. You can just do that. You yeah. can just do that. Yeah, it's, do, do of, you? of course you're going to be a rock star. Yeah, that's but fine. But what if just on the side. Just do your little poems you on the side. You just knew how to, you know, do the, do the books. Yeah. Bookkeeping. You could just be a bookkeeper. <laughs> you very much gave her that. She writes, 
An English major who knew shorthand was something else again. Everybody would want her. She would be in demand among all the up-and-coming young men, and she would transcribe thrilling letter after thrilling letter. The trouble was, I hated the idea of serving men in any way. I wanted to dictate... (laughs) She says, I wanted to dictate my own thrilling letters. Same. So I do love that, that yeah. line. It's like, no, I want to be the one in charge of this. Yeah. And again, write. that's like such a mum thing. Yeah. To be like, well, you could do, be so exciting to read all those letters. And just like Sylvia Plath in real life, you know, her father's died. And her mother apparently, in the book anyway, I don't know if this is actually true for Sylvia Plath, but in the book, Esther's mother is always cursing her father for not believing or not having life insurance when he died. So they mm. they were let, left quite poor. So, I can see why the mother would be like, no, you should try and earn some money too. But She just wants a bit of practicality. Yes, absolutely. So, facing a summer at home with her mother and now with no plans, Esther begins to spiral into a depression. She continues to wear the blouse and skirt she bartered for with Betsy and doesn't shower or wash her hair. She decides that she could write a book where the main character is herself, but with a different name. She quickly settles on Elaine as it has six letters, just like Esther. Interestingly, Sylvia also has six letters. Yeah. So now Sylvia's writing a book about herself with a different name and in the book the character is writing about her own life with a different name. Very self-referential. <laughs> but it doesn't last because due to her depression, Esther finds herself unable to write. She also can't read and most disturbingly of all, she can't sleep. For a full week, she can't sleep. And there was a bit of foreshadowing <laughs> earlier about not sleeping. That's right. Now... We had a brush with someone who had insomnia at the start of the year. Don't know, don't know if you mind if I bring this up. We can talk about but this. On New, on New Year's Eve this year, this is why you weren't reading at the, the very last hour. You suffer from uh, intense migraines. Yes, I get bad migraines. And you had the worst one of your life or in the years I've known you anyway. Yeah, probably not of my life, but it was bad enough that we had to go to the hospital. Yeah, and it was also it was like a 40 degree day. You couldn't, you also vomiting, whatever. You couldn't keep fluids down. So it was a bit worried. So we went to the hospital and we have to you go to emergency. They take you through, but I had to sit in the waiting room. Yeah, but this is, just to fully set the scene, this is an emergency room on New Year's on Eve. On New Year's Eve, on like a really hot day. Yeah. So you can imagine. So there were a lot of people, a lot of characters in there. There were a lot of characters. My, the favourite was a guy came in. And he walked up to the admission nurse who's sitting behind the desk and he said, look, I'm here because I've got, I've got insomnia. I haven't slept in days. I can't sleep. I just, I've tried everything. I can't sleep. I've tried swimming. I've tried cycling. Herbal teas. Herbal teas. I've tried he's yoga. He's listing things. Tried yoga. Listing, things. listing all these things. And then she I goes. Ha- he's like, I haven't slept in a week. I've been tra- doing this. I've been doing that. And she goes, huh. Okay. Well, let me ask. Have you tried lying down and trying to go to sleep? <laughs> And I couldn't believe that he didn't just like lose it. He was like, oh, yeah, you've tried that too. <laughs> Can I want to go? <laughs> so that really made me laugh, the thought that if he'd gone, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, my God, I'm going to try that. <laughs> that is good. That is good stuff. But I guess the poor triageness does have to, have to ask that question. I think you, probably she has to ask that. Yeah, there would be people who'd be like, no, and I won't. Um, yeah, I'm sure they see a lot of stuff. So, n- no uh, no disrespect to the nurse, but it was just a very funny thing to him list of these things and then be like, have you tried lying down and trying to go to sleep? <laughs> have you tried closing your eyes? Oh, my yeah. God. Oh, my <laughs> God, I haven't. So, Esther, she's she can't sleep for days. And even the, her mum says to her, you can't have not slept for a week. You, you can't. I'm sure you slept. And she's like, no, nah, I don't think I did. So, she's prescribed sleeping pills. But when she goes back to her doctor to ask for more within a week because she's taken them all, She's referred to a psychiatrist called Dr. Gordon. 
Esther is not a fan of Dr. Gordon, who is not what she imagined at all. He's young and good-looking and has a photo of his perfect family on his desk. And she's like, how could a guy like this ever help me? Yeah. Also, his name's Gordon. Problem with the name Gordon? Well, I just don't know that it inspires confidence. Okay. Feels like it's a train. Gordon the train, that's what you think of. I mean, it could have been... Isn't there a character on... on, uh on Thomas. Thomas, the There's tank Thomas, engine. there is Gordon, the, Gordon. Is Gordon the one that they have to lock in, in the tunnel after he refuses to come out? Do you remember? This is why Gordon, for me, is triggering so much. Very depressing episode, actually. Yeah. So he goes, I think they actually don't play that episode anymore. Right, yeah, Children so find it too traumatizing. Know, what I remember is, you know, I haven't seen this in uh, close to 30 years. And I still remember that Gordon, I think it's Gordon, didn't want to come out of the tunnel. He's like, I don't feel like it. Having a bit of an episode himself. And rather than help Gordon out, give him a bit of... Of, uh, you know, a shoulder to cry on. What they what do they do? The they controller said, "All right, <laughs> oh, yeah, all capitalism right. <laughs> will prevail." <laughs> they brick him up inside yeah, the tunnel. Horrific. He is conscious. <laughs> He's <laughs> conscious. <laughs> this is a sentient train. For but controller. Then I think they unbrick him many years later, and he's just angry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you would be. And he goes on a rampage. <laughs> He kills the fat controller yeah, and, and his that, whole family. That is why they actually won't show that episode anymore. Yeah, because of the violence. Because of the extreme violence. Yeah, when f- the fat controller was decapitated by Gordon, that was a step too far. <laughs> that was actually, that was the line. <laughs> they found it and we crossed it. So, she's there. She rocks up. She sees Dr. Gordon. She doesn't want to be there. And then she sees him. She's like, who is this guy? She arrives in his waiting room having not bathed or washed her clothes in three weeks. Yeah. And it says, the reason I hadn't washed my clothes or my hair was because it seemed so silly. I saw the days of the year stretching ahead like a series of bright white boxes and separating one box from another with sleep, like a black shade. Only for me, the long perspective of shades that set off one box to the next had suddenly snapped up and I could see day after day after day glaring ahead of me like a white, broad, infinitely desolate avenue. It seemed silly to wash one day when I would only have to wash again the next. I, I understand that. That's why I haven't washed in a long time. And that is also why you smell to yeah. high heaven. <laughs> well, I wash today when I have to wash tomorrow as well. Yeah, but I understand. This, this is an existential crisis. I absolutely understand that too. Yeah. yeah, we've all been there. Yep. And she's just there in a very severe way. Yeah, and she's maybe there in a more nasally, visceral way. But we've all been there in our hearts. And she meets Dr. Gordon and takes an immediate dislike to the man. He asks her... Suppose you try and tell me what you think is wrong. And she writes to us, what did I think was wrong? That made it sound like as if nothing was really wrong. I only thought it was wrong. Yeah, but also, she's not a doctor. (laughs) Speaking of this reminds me of another another scenario. I once um, woke up for three days in a row. At the same time, I would get these massive hives on my legs all over. Huge welts. But, and they were getting worse each morning. So I went, I've got to go to the doctor about this. So I went there. I went to the doctor and I des- described it just exactly like that. And he goes to me, huh, what do you think it is? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. You're a fucking doctor. do you love when a doctor does that and then they get on the Google? Oh, and then, and then he did a Google and then he, he goes, oh, how do you spell it? How do you spell it? And then he writes down on a, on a post-it note on a, on a pad and then passes it across to me. And all it said was, Zyrtec. Oh, great. <laughs> Which is a, I don't know if that's international, but it's a anti-histamine. A common antihistamine you can buy from anywhere that's famous because it's on lots of ads. <laughs> and I went, all right, thanks, mate. And I paid that man $85. And, and yeah, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> what did I think was wrong? That made it sound as if nothing was wrong. 
I, I get it, Esther. I get it. Dr. Gordon prescribes that Esther undergo electroshock therapy, which absolutely terrifies her. Now, I knew nothing about electroshock therapy, also known as electroconvulsive therapy or ETC, but it's still used today. Yeah, it is. But now it's done under a form of anesthesia. And it's also used much less frequently. And, I think and in, in better controlled scenarios than and it was much, then. And much less full on. Mm. Much less full on. And I think because of it's been portrayed in this in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and people are now, they read it and go, oh my God, that's like basically torture. So yeah. I think back then it might have been. <laughs> because the first ECT or ETC, Esther and Sylvia Plath herself, it should be said, received was the now obsolete, unmodified form without general anesthesia. And it's terrifying and painful and not surprisingly, it didn't have positive results for Esther. No, it wouldn't. After the treatment, Esther tells her mother, you can call him up and tell him, I'm not coming next week. Yeah. And it says, you know, you think that the mum would probably be like, oh, maybe you try it again or be understanding of, okay, no worries, we can see someone else. But it says, quote, my mother smiled. I knew my baby wasn't like that. I looked at her. Like what? Like those awful people. There's awful dead people at the hospital. She paused. I knew you'd decide to be all right again. Yeah, that's such a that's such a generational thing, isn't yeah, it? That's such no, a mum. No like, understanding of uh, yeah. how mental illness works in any way there. But like you say, in 1963, her mum's probably born in the early... Oh, aren't we 53? Oh, uh, yes, it's, that's right. It's even earlier than that. I 53. was like, whoa, we have skipped no, a decade. No, her, her mum... You're right, 53, sorry. I was thinking of uh, when it was published. But then her mum's you know, probably born at the turn of the, of the century. So a real disconnect there. But she isn't all right, as uh, her mum says that she's chosen to be. And in fact, Esther's condition worsens and she starts to be infatuated with death and suicide that she reads about in the local paper. The local paper has this section. Uh, it has a name a name that her mum calls it. It's like... Oh, I can't think... Can't think Obituaries? It, it's not a bit... It's more like um, like a morbidly fascinating news. Yeah. Like, and it's stuff about deaths and suicides and uh, accidents and stuff like that. And it's written in uh, pretty basic language. And it's the only thing that Esther can read. Yeah, we don't, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> no, we don't, we, we don't sensationalize things anymore. No. Well, maybe, but we don't, there's now rules around oh, how you sorry. report deaths. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I thought, I thought you were making fun of that. But yes, you are. Absolutely right. Yeah. As a journalist, you know that there are. Yeah, that's just to say to everyone, there actually are rules around how you can report things like this because it can be really dangerous. Yes, because, you know, it encourages other people to act in other ways, right? Yes, and there's a lot of research that goes into this and most responsible outlets will actually update their guidelines pretty frequently based on the research that the experts sort of tell us about, you know, here's what you can say, here's what you can't say. So, for example, we don't say commit suicide. Because that comes from committing suicide as in it was a crime uh, and it's it sh- it's not or it shouldn't be. So we won't use that language. Well, interesting that you say all this and now it's changed. Even this is an example of how it can inspire people because she starts thinking about ending her own life and actually has a few attempts, uh, which I won't go through. But the fourth is the most serious. She overdoses on some sleeping pills and crawls into a crawl space under the house where no one finds her and she's missing for days. And at first her community are worried that she's been kidnapped. Mm. She's just missing. But eventually she's found by her mother and she awakes in hospital days later where she freaks out because she can't see anything. She's like, where am I? I can't see anything. And a nurse jokes that, don't worry, you'll be able able to marry a nice blind man, convincing Esther that she is also blind. 
But then the doctor comes in and loosens the bandage over her eyes that were covering them. And the nurse was just pranking her. Which is always what you want from a nurse when you're in a vulnerable position. You really want them to just, just a little prank. What are you thinking of? I know, just wild. Oh my gosh. Gotcha, you've been pranked. <laughs> oh. So Esther is taken to a state hospital after this, which is pretty awful, but is soon moved to an expensive private mental health facility that is almost like a country club, she describes. Something that her family would have no way to pay for, but Philomena Guinea, the wealthy author who paid for Esther's college scholarship, hears about her and Philomena herself was hospitalised in an asylum when she was young and she decides to pay for Esther's treatment. Mm. Which is very nice. Esther's mum tells her that she should be grateful as the family had already spent all their money on the other treatment and now she's in a very expensive institution and Esther knows she should feel grateful but she can't feel anything at all at this point. No. She writes, I knew I should be grateful to Miss Skinny, only I couldn't feel a thing. If Mrs Skinny had given me a ticket to Europe or a round-the-world cruise, it wouldn't have made one scrap of difference to me because wherever I sat, on the deck of a ship or at a street cafe in Paris or Bangkok... I would be sitting under the same glass bell jar, stewing in my own sour air. And that, and that is, that is because you're 19. I just keep going back to this. That is, that is, it is just so difficult to be that age. Mm. I have a lot of empathy. And in the, this last part of the novel, she keeps coming back to the thought of being stuck under a bell jar. Obviously, the title of the book. Mm. Which, when I heard the bell jar, I was like, I don't know what that is. It's, a, it's like a thick glass display container often used to display a scientific oddity or curiosity. Things can be put on display in them. It basically it looks a bit like an upside down drinking glass. With, with, a, with a round But top. it's rounded. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Sort looks of bell shaped, like, but yeah. If you imagine what, you know, in movies where they lift a silver lid off of a tray of food. A cloth. It looks quite like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe but a little bit taller and thinner. Taller maybe. and thinner and it's glass. But people used to just sort of have them in their homes much more than you would see now and have things kept under them as decor. Yeah, I think maybe my grandparents, now I think about it, my grandpa had like a maybe a, a clock under one of them. Yeah, and I th- and at times people would even keep fruit under there because then you could sort of see have a display of fruit oh, and the, it wouldn't smell as it went bad. And Esther feels like her depression is a bell jar separating her from the rest of the world. And that inside there's nowhere and that the glass distorts the world around her, stopping her from connecting with others. And many times on this point on she refers to either being in the, in the bell jar or, you know, it, it coming down again. But she has a much nicer time at the private institution and meets Dr. Nolan, a female psychiatrist who understands Esther far better than Dr. Gordon did. She again eventually goes under ECT, but these are much less harrowing under Dr. Nolan's care. She also has three injections of insulin per day. And this is a form of care that is no longer in use. Yes. I I did a very cursory read. I think they'd uh, inject you with insulin to maybe make you pass out or put you into a semi-coma-like state for a while. Yeah, I think there was also... It's Sometimes it's a bit like their heart was in the right spot, but they didn't quite get it right. You know, so the convulsive therapies now, they do do some versions of that. And it's about understanding that you're trying to reconnect brain connections or get them to fire in a different way which is which is what a lot of now modern treatments think about a similar thing but the insulin I think that was about hormone like they had an understanding that your hormones probably had something to do with something but they did they weren't quite there 
But their heart was in the right place. Yes, I think all, all of hopefully, all, yeah, they were trying, trying to make them feel better. But um, that's no longer practiced. Also in the private hospital, Esther runs into an old acquaintance from college named Joan. Joan tells her that she read about Esther in the paper after she was found under her own house, and she actually shows her some of the the tabloid stuff that was written about her. There's like these headlines, like missing girl found under house and stuff like that. And she read it and decided to run away and check herself into the institution. Joan says, quote, I had a summer job working for the chapter head of some fraternity, like the Masons, you know, but not the Masons. And I felt terrible. I had these bunions. I could hardly walk. In the last days, I had to wear rubber boots to work instead of shoes. And you can imagine what that did to my morale. And Esther says, I thought either Joan must be crazy, wearing rubber boots to work, or she must be trying to see how crazy I was, believing all that. <laughs> just such a strange answer. You think I'm, cra- I'm going to believe that you wear rubber boots to work? <laughs> it feels like they would just have an absolute um, conniption if they came post-COVID it's to see what people wear to work now. <laughs> Flip-flops. Yeah. <laughs> it's just funny how you... Esther is obviously very sensitive to her own suffering, but uh, Joan's like, I did this. And she's like, you wore boots? You got to be crazy. (laughs) You need to pull yourself together. (laughs) Come on, Joan. I know I haven't had a great time lately, but I haven't done that. I'm not wearing rubber boots, so have some decorum. So Joan is this old acquaintance. And the other thing that connects her to Esther is that Joan also used to date Buddy Willard. And Buddy got around. The dreaded Buddy Willard. Did, and she dated Buddy Willard before Esther dated Buddy Willard. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Esther later catches Joan in bed with another female patient named Dee Dee and is pretty surprised as to what's going on there. Joan tells Esther that she likes her better than she likes Buddy. Esther recalls other lesbians she has known, two college classmates who caused a small scandal and a professor and, and sort of compares them to Joan. And Joan later says... I like you. Like, like. I think that's what she's saying. And um, Esther, this is what she writes. She says, that's tough, Joan. I said, picking up my book, because I don't like you. You make me puke, if you want to know. Oh. Which is very brutal to Joan. Yeah, it is brutal. I don't know if, like, even if you're letting down someone who's been mean to you, you don't need to say that they make you puke. Yeah. That's what that would hurt your feelings. And, and honestly, Joan hasn't been mean in any way. She hasn't. She's just worn rubber boots to work. Well, and that was what it was. But I don't think you need to say you makes you. You know what I'll say to you, my love? You don't make me puke. Thank you. Nice thing you've ever said. And I hope your mum's listening. <laughs> anyway, Esther undergoes some shock therapy again and makes some improvement and has moved to a different ward. So things are, are, are getting better. Esther tells Dr. Nolan in one of her sessions, that she really wants to lose her virginity and wants to be free like men, but is terrified of getting pregnant, something they don't have to worry about. Buddy Willard isn't worrying about that. No. Dr. Nolan introduces her to a doctor who is able to fit her with a diaphragm for contraception, and Esther is more determined than ever to lose her virginity. And I think, because it's a very Catholic part of the world, it might even be illegal you know, to be given this contraception at the time, she sort of implies. But, but she's able to get it. And on day leave from the facility, Joan meets a math professor named Irwin on the steps of the library at Harvard. And he's a bit of a playboy. He would be with a name like Irwin. Irwin, absolutely. You'd be batting the ladies away. <laughs> Go get it, Dr. Irwin. 
And one thing leads to another and they go back to his house and they have some sex. But Esther afterwards doesn't enjoy it, doesn't enjoy it, but also starts bleeding like a lot. Mm. Fully hemorrhaging blood. And Erwin's a bit like, oh, yeah, yeah, the first time you do it, that sometimes happens, don't worry about it. And she's like, okay. But then she's really bleeding. She goes back to the hospital and she goes to see Joan, who is oblivious as ever. Joan doesn't notice that blood is pouring onto the floor. But Esther's shoes are literally filling with blood. Mm. And I bet she's we- she was wishing she's wearing some boots. She was saying at rubber this point. boots would actually. Yeah. Would this would maybe Joan was onto something. Joan was onto something. But eventually she notices the blood. Eventually, Esther is like, I'm bleeding. I need you to get a doctor. I'm dying. But when they hear the doctors that it's a problem with a woman, they all hang up or say, It's Sunday. I'm not working. Yeah. Classic. And that's, that's a bit of medical misogyny that we can all relate to. 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 (laughs) Eventually, they get a taxi to a hospital where Esther is seen by a doctor who saves her life, stops the bleeding and tells her basically she's had a one in a million reaction. Yeah. An allergic reaction to Dr. Owen. Yeah, it's Dr. Owen. He uh, gave her the ick so hard (laughs) that she she hemorrhaged. She started bleeding. But her life is saved, thankfully. A few nights later... One of the doctors at the clinic knocks on Esther's door and asks if she's heard from Joan. Joan had gone out on a night release to see a movie but never returned. Tragically, the news come through that Joan has taken her own life in the woods. Mm. And Esther's very shocked by this. She attends the funeral and uh, is saddened by, by Joan's loss. In the final chapter, Esther prepares for an interview with the board of directors at the facility. And if they agree, she can return to college. That's what she's hoping to. But she worries that her feelings may return. She says, how do I know that someday at college, in Europe, somewhere, anywhere, the bell jar with its stifling distortions wouldn't descend again? She knows that she won't be able to forget what she went through even if she's feeling much better. Her old flame Buddy Willard visits. Of course he does. And she has to help him dig his car out of the snow. Of course she does. <laughs> <Classic> buddy. <laughs> she even writes, I did most of it. Much less confident than she remembered him, he sheepishly asks her if he's to blame for her and Joan's conditions. He's like, I dated you both and you both ended up here. Was that me? Yeah, was that? And they go, we did find you a bit disgusting <laughs> in the end. Did I do that? Turkey parts. Was that me? <laughs> gobble, gobble. She tactfully assures him what Dr. Nolan told her and that's that no one's to blame for Joan's death. Yeah. Esther was also feeling a bit bad. Yeah. Well, she did tell Joan she made a puke. Yes, that was... Uh, honestly, you'd be regretting saying that. You'd feel yeah, terrible well, about don't that. Don't tell people that. Don't, don't tell people exactly. that. Exactly. Let's puke. learn from, from this. You Never tell that. people that. You can think that. That's fine. But I, there's no need to tell someone. No. So, she's very tactful. Then he, Buddy Willard, untactfully wonders out, li- out loud, who will marry you now? Now you've been institutionalised. Oh. Um... Oh. Well, not you, so yeah. that's a relief. That's right. I'll marry anyone on earth <laughs> but you, mate. As Esther waits to enter her final interview with the board of directors, Dr. Nolan assures her that she'll be fine. They'll just ask a couple of questions. It's no big deal. But she is scared to death. Finally, she is called to enter the room containing the doctors planning to interview her. And the final line of the bell jar is, the eyes and the faces all turn themselves towards me and guiding myself by them as by a magical thread, I stepped into the room. End of book. End of book. 
Which is like a it's an open ending. What do you think? Do you think she gets out? Oh, I think that she probably gets out of there. But the, the sad part about this is it's impossible to read this without considering that what it, happens to Sylvia eventually. That it's, that it's about Sylvia's life almost exactly, and we know that she did recover for a time, led a life for about ten years, and then ended up taking her own life after a, another huge bout of depression. Mm. And that, I've got to say, really colours the whole reading of it, doesn't mm. it? Because you, you know, and I think, honestly, that's coloured it from nearly anyone who's ever read it because she died just two weeks after its publication. So unless you were, I don't know, her editor or something, you read it really early on, that's sort of the way that, that everyone reads it. Is that yeah. There's no happy ending for this character because you know what happens to her. Unlike nearly every other novel you read, where you read it and you can, you know, if it's open like that, you decide in your mind. You've maybe you've got a feeling, but no one can tell you, yeah, this definitely happens or not happens because unless it's a sequel, you don't come back to that character. But yes, we know what happens yeah. to Yeah, and because, I, I, you know, as I've said uh, several times, like I think a lot of this is about being trapped in that moment of youth where you're so intelligent, but maybe you just haven't had – you don't have perspectives right. that you will gain. Mm. So maybe then, you know, I would if I had read it in that two-week period, I would have thought, okay, maybe there's a moment of hope here. Yes. Yeah. And maybe there is a moment of hope because those 10 years, those were not wasted years. No, that's right. And as she said in the in this book, you know, he says poems are dust. Well, her poetry will live on for a long, long time. Yeah, her poetry is not dust. No, her, her, her poems in this book will be read for hundreds of years. Read so and, and really make people have a different understanding and perspective about things as well. Absolutely. And yes, people still discuss her. People still ad, ad, you know, adapt her work, adapt her life. Mm. She'll live on forever. I just want to say, so I first heard this on an audio book. Every now and then I listen to these on uh, audio books, these classics. And then I read another online version of it as well when I was going back through it. But um, you also listened to this audio book. Yes, you did. Read by... Actor Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yes. Who I thought was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. it's. I mean, you can tell why they're paid to act. Yeah. They, it was, they do a good reading. It was really, really, really good. But um, I actually hadn't heard, hadn't heard the last chapter for a long, long time because as I was getting into the final chapter, I had a minor car accident whilst listening to it and I paused it. I, I will say someone ran a red light and drove into the front of my car. Yeah, I mean, I would say when you say minor car accident, minor in the sense that you weren't hurt at all, very grateful, major in the sense that it was a major inconvenience and took our car out. For about two months. For a very Longer. Maybe three months, actually. And they did $20,000 worth of damage to the car. And the most amazing thing about it was the lady who drove into me, she'd only she'd picked up that hire car that she smashed into me 15 minutes before. Yeah, and I think Sylvia would have enjoyed that irony. <laughs> I think she would have. And then um, I called the, the her insurance for her, her tow truck. She was very confused. She wasn't sure what to do. And I said, don't. I was very calm. I said, which I'm surprised at, to be honest. I was very calm. Can you believe this? And I, I called the tow truck for her. And then she decided when the tow truck got there, because our cars absolutely should not be driven, either of them. No. Her, well, ours was ours was. Totaled. That's right. The front right tyre was absolutely smashed off. And, and the axle was down and it did all sorts of internal damage. And, but she'd booked the hire car to go down to the Great Ocean Road for the day with some friends. And she decided, you know what, I'm just going to drive down there. And she just drove off to go down the Great Ocean Road, which is one of the most notorious pieces of road in, in Victoria. And we wish her well. Yeah. We wish her well. 
Well, apparently she made it back two days later, and that's when I heard back from their insurance. <laughs> but it's all fixed now. It's all fixed now. But then I did. So I, for a long time, I was too scared to go back to listen to this. So I didn't know about that last chapter for a long time. And actually, I felt like it was a, a much more positive end than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And just before we go a bit more into the end, I do just feel like this might be a moment for a PSA, which is when you're in an accident like that, what should you do? What should you do? You, well, you learned the lesson. So why don't you share it? Call your insurance. Call your own insurance and just get them to handle it. Just get them to handle it, guys. I know. I went through the time. Don't t- I try went and through, do your own. I Don't. went locally because it's not my. It wasn't my fault. She ran a red light, so I didn't have to get the insurance. No, no, involved. no, no, no. Just your insurance will fight for you. Go to your own insurance. Yeah, honestly, do that. It that was, was the lesson that we learned. It was a. It was. It was a long time of mucking around. That was the lesson that we learned, and we would love to share it with you. So the lesson is, <laughs> go via your own insurance. Go for it. That's the number one lesson of the Belger is if you are hit by another car, contact your own insurance. I think the number two lesson is, I'm not really sure what the number two oh. lesson is. <laughs> well, it's always good to have a backup lesson. I think the number two, well, of the of the bell jar, I would say the number two lesson is being in the moment can be difficult and hard and you'll probably understand it differently when you're looking back on it. Yes. And I guess that she would she was thinking about that as she was writing back on on her own life and it, she told friends and stuff that she had a, an idea for a better novel and she was like basically writing this one to get out of the way yeah i think a lot and i think that you really feel that as well because of how autobiographical it is a lot of famous authors sort of go there's a book you have to get out of your system before you can write a better book i'd imagine how good it would have been this is a a classic mm. and it was and she's like i don't see this as a bit of a, a serious work but having said that, we always finish by scoring it out of five. Mm. As you, uh, I used to say, as you heard it here today, but mm-hmm. you actually have read this one. Mm-hmm. So, what do, what do you think of of the Belger? It's obviously it obviously has quite the legacy and a lot yes, of yes, uh, it does have a lot of legacy and history attached to it. Like I say, it's hard not to frame it with the history that we all know. Yeah, and I think look honestly, if I was thinking about it with the framing and the history and the writing itself, I'd probably give it a four. But for how, at times, annoying Esther can be, I would give it a three and a half. You found that frustrating. Okay. Yeah. People often say that this is, um, for better or worse, like a, a female uh, version of The Catcher in the Rye. Or they at least compare this sort of, because it's like a, a young teenage person yes. who is coming to terms with their emotions. Yes. A little bit annoying. Quite an, and, and annoying because you can relate so wholeheartedly yes. to a lot of the experience yes and I, I think i'd relate it even more to holden caulfield in the catcher in the rye i don't know if that's because i was also a young annoying teenage man at one stage yeah um and there's definitely bits in this that i definitely do relate to but um but I, yeah i don't know if that's because my experiences were more similar to his i also found him quite annoying so at some, yes but i think you like, find them so annoying because you're like oh cringe i did that yes exactly. i was a bit like that and you want to be like sort of you know Sort of like shake him a bit and say, "Come on, pull yourself together, pull yourself together." Yeah, not. I mean, pull yourself together in the sense of pulling yourself together, not in the sense of diminishing difficult mental health. Struggles. Exactly. So it's it's more the yes. sort of the the teeny stuff that you're annoyed the about. The teen. It's like not the. Did bigger. you need to tell Joan she was going to make you puke? That's yeah. the pull yourself together stuff. Yes, not about. the uh, full existential stuff that. You know, the difficult. That's obviously yeah. depression. The clinical depression. We're not yes. saying shake yourself no, no, out no. of that. No, no, no. You can't. You can't. You can't. Yes, and no. if you have, 
if you're experiencing those feelings, you need to reach out for help because it's it's too much for one person to fight against that by themselves. Absolutely. But if you are going to tell someone that they make you puke, maybe don't. Maybe that's something you could pull yourself yeah, together. Little things like that, you go, yeah, come yeah. on, so don't, let's, don't do so that. So those are two scales. Yeah, there's so two different things. <laughs> so we go. say, contact your own insurance. Don't tell someone they're going to make you puke. Great life lessons here. So you're giving it a three and a half out of five. I thought you were going to score it higher than that, but fair enough. I'm going to give it a four and a half out of five. I, re- I okay. did enjoy it. Yeah. I thought there were some great uh, descriptions, great like uh, terms of phrase. There were. Great. Uh, some beautiful passages. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. That sounds much better than uh, yeah. great descriptions. Great descriptions. Oh, <laughs> uh, great descriptions. I really described that omelette quite well. Yeah. Uh, no, and I felt a lot for the character. But then also, I guess, because the whole time I'm thinking, you're going to end your life one day because I'm thinking about Sylvia. So it's very difficult to, to take that context away. Yes. And I'm thinking, I thought about that a lot. I don't know if everyone else does when they're Well, reading. and certainly everyone who will listen to this will think about that because we foreshadowed it. We foreshadowed it. Qu- exactly. We did that. Read that. We I did a bit of, we did a bit of, ready? Ooh, I put, did I put the effect under there? Who knows? <laughs> I, I won't know. <laughs> well, that does bring us to the end of the episode. Thank you once again for, for joining me on Book Cheat. Is there any uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave with people? I would just like to say shout out to any Gordons that are out there. I'm a fan. I, was one of, I love the um, Gordon. Big fan. But I did just find, I think once we got into the Thomas the Tank Engine stuff, that explained why I found that a bit triggering. Oh, okay, right. You were thinking yeah. about that Gordon yeah. specifically. But I just want to say, if your name is Gordon, shout out. Shout out to you, Gordon. Shout out to you, Gordon. Hey, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, as we said at the start, you can suggest an episode at any time. We'll suggest a, a book or a poem. I've done opera. I've done plays whatever you think i should cover on the show you can do so via the link in the description of this episode this show is also supported by the great people on the do go on patreon a little network of of podcasts that include who knew it with matt stewart do go on primates book cheat listen now and you support them all uh, if you support our patreon you can get bonus episodes and access to a great facebook group and all sorts of things and that website is patreon.com slash do go on pod we've got 190 bonus episodes in the back catalogue that you can access instantly get amongst it so thank you so much for joining us and as we always say here on the podcast we're gonna yell books forever okay and i'm sure humphrey will come running as we yell this on the count of three one two three books Books forever forever! (laughs) no he's sound asleep (laughs) okay bye everyone Oh no, we just looked it up. It was Henry. Henry, not Gordon, who was locked in the tunnel on Thomas the Tank Engine. With apologies to all Gordons. And all Henrys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.